Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the Return of the Shadow class. I am so excited about this. Uh, I've been looking forward to this for quite a long time, ever since ever since it, it uh, began to look quite distinctly like we were going to be marching our way through uh, uh, the History of Middle-Earth series. I've been excited to get to the Return of the Shadow, Treason of Isengard, and the War of the Ring. Uh, that is the history of the Lord of the Rings books. Because, of course, as I've said before, although I have read the history of Middle-Earth before, I've never yet had the occasion that really kind of sort of prompted me to read really carefully chapter by chapter all the way through in order through the history of Middle-Earth. It's always been a, more of a reference series than anything else. And uh, although, it's, although, again, although I've read these books before, I've never studied them. I've never studied them in depth, and I've never taught them. Um, so I am seriously looking forward to uh, uh, doing a really rigorous read-through of this material and talking it through with you guys. So uh, this is uh, super exciting. Welcome to everybody. There's a whole bunch of people here tonight, which is awesome. Uh, we are almost, but not quite, at capacity. So uh, uh, so we're going to, if we do, 100 is our capacity. So if more people than 100 show up, uh, it's the first 100 people who come, not the first 100 registrants, the first 100 people who show up uh, for class who are able to get in. Um, I might do an overflow thing through our Twitch channel if I have to or whatever, but... Um, uh, yeah, so, okay, um, yeah, uh, so, Yana, we've got uh, 89 people here tonight so far, so it's a, it, it's a great list. So let me do a little bit, because, therefore, we have, we have a bunch of people who I think are joining us perhaps for the first time. I want to make sure you understand how this is going to work. So, uh, first of all, in the, uh, in the small picture, let me make sure you understand how the interface works. So when I'm referring to other people saying things, I'm, of course, talking about the people who are typing comments in. Um, because there are so many people, this is too awkward to try to patch everybody's audio in uh, uh, to do audio back and forth with me. Uh, so what you guys do, any observations, comments, questions that you guys have, please don't hesitate. Don't wait for me to stop. Just go ahead and type uh, them into your, your, your questions box. Your, your, your sort of your chat box there in the GoToWebinar control panel, and I will get those. Uh, I'll, I'll get those right away, um, and uh, I can't promise to respond. To, there are 89 people, so uh, I can't. Resp- I'm not going to be able to respond to absolutely everything that everybody says, but I'll do the best that I can to get to as many people as I possibly can. So, uh, so that's what we're going to do. Um, and uh, you, again, if you're new here, you'll you'll kind of get the you'll kind of get the drift of it. However, if you want the opportunity to, uh, you'll notice there's no interface to chat like back and forth with everybody in the group as part of this interface. Um, I strongly dislike that kind of thing being part of the webinar experience, um, not least because it makes it absolutely impossible for me to read the comments of people. So anyway, uh, but I know that a lot of people really enjoy being a part of that kind of experience and conversation with other people. So we have uh, a place for that. So if you go to uh, the Mythgard Academy set the, the the Return of the Shadow webpage. We've been linking to it on social media. Um, if you go to Mythgard.org and then go to Mythgard Academy, you'll find it the first on that menu. At the bottom of the page, you'll see a link uh, to our chat room. 
So if you go to the chat room there, uh, you should be able to find, there'll be a bunch of people already there in the chat room uh, from uh, uh, from the other people who are here uh, this evening. Uh, and then you guys, so you guys can talk amongst yourselves. I won't be able to see anything that happens there. So if you have a comment or question, you've got to, you got to then paste it or, or, uh, or retype it uh, into the box that I'll, you know, where, where, so it'll come up where I see it. Um, but, um, but that should be fine. Um, so, okay, so there we go. I remembered to see, there you go, Arthur. I remembered to, Arthur Harrow is like uh, the, the sort of uh, unofficial host of the chat room, and he's always reminding me to uh, tell people about it. So, uh, so there we are. Um, now, and sort of the, so that's sort of the, 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 the short term, like how the actual class will function. Um, and of course, if you have to miss it or if you fall asleep or something like that, um, don't, f- re- don't, despair, right? The recordings of all of these classes will be posted. Um, we post all of the material, both audio files and, um, and video files to iTunes U. We post the, uh, the video files to our YouTube channel, the Signum University YouTube channel. Uh, we have a podcast stream that should be delivering our uh, audio files. I understand that that's not been, that's been wonky. Wait, we were, I'm looking into that. We'll make sure that that's up and running uh, smoothly again as well. Um, so that there's lots of ways uh, that you can get it or people who can't attend live or if you know other friends who might be interested in this uh, you know please go ahead and, and uh, share those links and stuff when those come out um, alright so uh, anyway so the other thing what was the other thing I was going to oh yeah um, just to let you this is welcome if you're new welcome to the Mythgard Academy the Mythgard Academy of course is a series of discussions that I've been running now for three years. It's uh, uh, kind of amazing to think it's already been three years. Um, but uh, so where, I, you know, we go through books, not exactly chapter by chapter in the sense of doing one chapter at a time, um, but um, slowly, sort of gently um, through the... Um, uh, through the uh, through these through these books and it's been great fun. The books that we do, I don't choose them; uh, they're chosen by popular vote. Uh, so we have our electorate, and, uh, and to, to get a vote, uh, all you need to do is make a tax deductible donation to Signum University, and you'll be part of our electorate. Uh, we let all of our our donors vote uh, for which books they want to talk about, uh, and we have a rule that no, you, we don't ever do any two authors two books in a row, which means. We only do Tolkien every other book uh, in the Mythgard Academy. We've just finished, of course, doing The Dispossessed by Ursula Le Guin, which was a brilliant, fascinating book. And now uh, we're returning to Tolkien uh, with The Return of the Shadow. So, okay. Two quick announcements before we start. I know I have a long preamble here tonight, and I'm, but I'm, after this, you guys are going to be amazed, especially our veterans, going to be shocked at how I rip through my slides tonight. Uh, I'm quite famous for my efficiency, uh, as I think all of our veterans uh, will readily attest. Um, okay, so two quick announcements. First, an announcement that I've made before, but I want to remind you of, uh, Mythmoot. Mythmoot 4 is coming. Uh, it is the biggest single event that uh, we have ever thrown as an institution, and it is going to be twice as awesome as anything we've ever done. Uh, it's a four-day conference starting from Thursday evening uh, through Sunday. It's on the first weekend of June uh, 2017, so it's coming up quicker than you might think. Um, we're at an awesome new venue, uh, the National Conference Center down in Leesburg, 
Virginia, uh, and it's it's going to be I I was it's going to be absolutely fantastic. The opportunities that we're going to have uh, at this place to do both uh, both formal and informal stuff, both academic and fun, uh, it's going to be uh, it's going to be really great. I'm really looking forward to. It. We've got some great scholars coming already. We have uh, uh, we're, we're we're working on some other uh, thing. We'll be making some announcements about other um, uh, guests and and things that are going to be happening. Uh, at Mythmoot very soon, so I am, uh, I am very excited uh, for Mythmoot Four. So uh, please t- uh, check that out. You can go to either of our websites, MythGuard.org or SignumUniversity.org, and you'll be able to find the uh, the, the 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 links to Mythmoot uh, and uh, reserve your spot. Okay, so the um, uh, that was one announcement. The other announcement, and this. This is relatively new. I've been talking about some of you, uh, those of you especially who attend uh, my weekly uh, uh, Twitch stream uh, when I'm uh, uh, streaming my Lotro, <clears throat> my Lord of the Rings Online character, Grifflet, um, will already have heard about this, but many of the rest of you will not. Um, I am starting a new series that's going to be running in parallel to the Mythgard Academy. So there's going to be more. Uh, I'm going to so I'll, I'll be, I'm going to be doing these free open classes twice a week instead of just once. So this Wednesday night is Mythgard Academy night, but Tuesday night is going to be exploring the Lord of the Rings night. So what I'm going to be doing, starting on Tolkien's birthday, in fact, starting on Tolkien's 125th birthday, uh, January 3rd, Tuesday, January. January 3rd, 2017, uh, I'm going to begin a chapter-by-chapter study of the Lord of the Rings, the published Lord of the Rings. So it's kind of cool. I'm going to be doing the Return of the Shadow and looking at the manuscript history at the same time that I go back and start doing chapter-by-chapter through the published Lord of the Rings. I haven't taught the Lord of the Rings, just just straight up teaching the Lord of the Rings uh, in three years, ever since we did this uh, back in uh, the Mythgard Academy class. But then I was kind of rushed. I mean, if you've seen the recordings or, or, or listened to it, or some of you will have long enough memories to remember when I did the Fellowship of the Ring, which was like spring of 2012 or uh, some ludicrously distant time like that. Anyway, um, I think I did six class sessions on the Fellowship of the Ring 6, if you can believe how incredibly rushed that is. Um, no way, man. I'm going to do the Fellowship of the Ring in like 40 sessions, okay? Where I'm going to go chapter by... I'm not going to do any more than one chapter per week. Uh, the, 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 the class that I'm going to be doing this is, you know, open, another one of these open non-credit classes. I'm calling Exploring the Lord of the Rings because um, the, many of you, of course, will have, will have uh, uh, know my, my Hobbit book, Exploring the Hobbit. So it's kind of parallel to that, essentially, where I, just as I went through in my book through the Hobbit chapter by chapter, discuss, you know, really looking at, at the themes and, uh, and the ideas and the wordplay and everything as it's developing in each chapter all the, all the way through the book. I want to do the same thing with the Lord of the Rings, but I want to do this as a live discussion. You know, several people have been asking me, does this mean that I'm going to, you know, write up the Exploring the Lord of the Rings book after this? Maybe. Can't say. I haven't thought of it, but we'll see about that. Anyway, um, so starting Tuesday night, January 3rd, we're going to go through the Lord of the Rings. But now here's the cool thing. There's another cool angle. So that's going to happen, right? It's going to be a Mythgard Academy style discussion like this. So I'll be talking about the book and I'll be able to, to take your comments. We'll talk back and forth and we'll go through chapter by chapter. So, and I'm, and I'm, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to hold back. I might take two, three weeks on some chapters. I, you know, I, I, this, 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 this thing is totally open-ended. I have no goal uh, in mind. I'm fully prepared 
to take like two years to work my way through the Lord of the Rings. I don't care. Um, so, okay. Uh, so, so, so that's going to start, but wait, there's more. There's another angle to this as well. Um, uh, in addition to talking about the book chapter by chapter at the end of the session, I'm then going to go see, cause I'm going to host this discussion from inside the Lord of the Rings online video game, because I don't know if you guys have seen this. I know some of you of course are here. I know, I, I, you know, I know many of you are, uh, uh, are playing, Lord of the Rings online, but some of you aren't, or, 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 you know, maybe have heard about, heard about it, but haven't done it yet. The Lord of the Rings online is the most thorough, detail-oriented, sophisticated, thoughtful adaptation of Tolkien in any genre that I've ever seen. I mean, I, just, I make absolutely no reservations about this. No film, no, uh, no, no, no radio adaptation. Uh, nothing is better and uh, and more thoughtfully engaged with the text uh, than what the folks at Turbine have done in the Lord of the Rings online video game. It is absolutely fantastic. Um, so uh, instead of broadcasting the discussions, the book discussions from the Netmoot, as we're doing here tonight, rather than using this interface, what we're going to do uh, is we're going to um, uh, uh, we're going to do um, we're going to do it on our, on, on our Twitch channel. So if you go to Twitch dot tv slash signum u s i g n u m u so twitch.tv slash signum u that's the twitch channel uh of signum university and we're going to be so I'll, I'll be broadcasting it so that's where the book discussion is going to happen uh we'll walk you through it in the first class we'll, we'll take some time doing that so i'm going to be i'm going to be here and i'm also going to be um I'm also going to be in game. I'm going to be. I'm going to. I have. Uh, I have uh, my my lore master character made up uh, in uh, in in Lotro, uh, and he's going to be in game in our special lecture hall, uh, uh, which is which is, is going to be awesome. Uh, which is which sort of located in Bree, uh, but uh, anyway, it's going to be cool. And uh, so uh, we'll have the book discussion, but then at the end of the night, we're going to do a field, an, an in-game field trip, right? So on the first day, for instance, we'll, we're, we, what we'll probably do after that is go to the party tree and look at the party field. Um, so we'll have a lot of discussion of the, uh, of the book itself, but then we will also... Um, uh, then we'll also go to uh, go to see how they how 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 the game is 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 adapting that. So we'll be looking at some of the sites and look at how they adapt uh, those places from the story. Also be thinking a little bit about how the the some of the story elements that we've been discussing from the book that day are integrated in, into the adaptation in terms. So we're gonna have it's gonna be like three quarters just book and then one quarter uh, talking about uh, Turbine's adaptation as well. So it should be really fun. I'm, 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 uh, I'm, I'm very excited uh, about this. So uh, anyway, so that's going to be starting January 3rd. I can't wait uh, for this to begin. So uh, it's going to be it's going to be awesome. So stay tuned for the best thing to do. If you go to twitch.tv slash signumu, uh, there's a little heart icon that you can click on. And that basically sort of subscribes you to our channel and you'll get an email notification uh, You know when I when I when I begin a stream and that kind of thing. Um, OK, so that is the big, exciting new thing that's uh, that's that's coming up uh, and it's going to be uh, it's gonna, and yes, I will be posted. All, all of those will also be recorded and posted to our YouTube channel as well. Uh, so you don't have to worry about it if you can't do it. Or yes, you know, Kevin, if your office computer blocks uh, uh, 
Twitch, which is not shocking that a work computer would do that. So if you're restricted in that way, uh, you can watch it on YouTube uh, later on. So anyway, yeah, uh, that's um, that's going to be that's going to be cool. Okay, so that's the fun stuff that's coming up. Let's now. Oh wait, hang on a second. I just see that we have reached our maximum. Well, that's fun. Okay, so what I'm going to do... Um, yeah, somebody just got bounced. Because we're full! That is awesome! So good to see so many of you here. Um, uh, so, okay. Yeah, I mean, okay. Like It's not awesome that somebody got bounced. I don't mean to say that it's awesome that somebody got bounced. It's just awesome that we have 100 people joining us here this evening. Um Okay. What I'm going to do, and also it's hard because like the people who are trying to get in right now have no way of hearing this because I wasn't sure this was going to happen. Um, what I'm going to do is I am going to, I'm just checking to make sure that this is going to be okay. Um, but I'm going to, I'm going to stream, I'm actually going to stream this session on, um, on our Twitch channel as well. So that, and that can be, that can, it can be unlimited, uh, observers, uh, on that. So let me just, uh, let me just quick check that out. Um, okay. All right. Okay. A second here. All right. Good. Okay. So I'm going to stream that there. So if you know anyone who's been bounced, you can tell them twitch.tv slash signumu, and they'll be able to find that. Okay. Okay. Cool. All right. Very good. All right, now I gotta get my chat box up here, so I had to put that down. Now I'll be able to see your comments again. There we are. Okay. Cool. Okay. Yeah. So um. So again. So uh, Twitch. That's T W I T C H dot TV slash Signum U, uh, and we are streaming. We are streaming there. Um, okay. So that that will be from now on. That'll be kind of our overflow room there as well, if we if we can manage that. All right. Okay. So let's talk about the return of the shadow uh, because uh, that's what we came here tonight to talk about, right? So okay. So first, uh, we're going to be focusing on the Lord of the Rings, of course, but we can't forget the chronological context of this, right? If you have been following with us, you'll remember all this stuff, right? But if you haven't, let me sum up, right? Um, because we've done already the first five books of the History of Middle-Earth series. I encourage you to go back and look at those classes because they were super fun. Um, but if you don't have time, here's the, here's the, 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 the sort of the four-minute synopsis of where uh, we've gotten to. Remember where we are. It's 1937. Right, fall of 1937. The Hobbit has just come out. The Hobbit was published in September of 1937, and it's a hit. Right, they're selling copy after copy, and the publisher is immediately saying, "Hey, 
write a sequel, right? This is great. Keep feeding us this stuff. People are, are just, they're, they're eating up the Hobbit on toast. We want more of it. And it seems fairly clear that the kind of thing that the publisher was hoping for here was a, sort of another Hobbit story. Uh, there were a whole bunch of, not exactly serials, but series which sort of open-ended series, right? I mean, one example I often give because it's one that we know that Tolkien and his family were were familiar with and 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 read in their house was the Doctor Doolittle series, right? It's just it's it's not like there's no overarching story arc. It's like the continuing adventures of like the hero and his sidekick, right? And that's kind of it seems to be the kind of thing that um uh, that that Alan and Unwin were hoping for, right, when they came to Tolkien and asked him to write a sequel. But, of course, as those of us who studied The Lost Road together a few months back will remember very clearly, that's not where Tolkien's head was at this point, right? He had finished writing The Hobbit in 1933, and although he'd been kind of fussing with The Hobbit for quite some time... Um, he, uh, you know, that is, you know, page proofs and corrections and illustrations. He was making paintings for The Hobbit, right, and sending those off. And, and then dealing with the people at Houghton Mifflin over in America. And then, you know, getting uh, upset at the, understandably upset at, like, the American compositor who decided to fix all of his spelling and everything else. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, um, that's, you know, it, it, he was still engaged with The Hobbit, obviously, but that's not what he was working on, right? It had been years since he had finished writing The Hobbit, and he had gone back to other projects. And of course, as we know, who did The Lost Road, the other projects were his return to his Silmarillion material. He had already at that point written, I would call it, two different versions of the Silmarillion material, right? He started with The Book of Lost Tales long time back, right? Back in the teens, stopped that sometime in the early 20s. Then did his uh, his attempt at writing the long epic poems, right? The lay of the, the alliterative lay of the children of Hurin, uh, the lay of Lathian in rhyming couplets. So he 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 was decided instead of trying to do the whole sort of series of stories at the first age, um, which of course wasn't yet the first age, but anyway, it was just the ancient mythology stories. Um, he, uh, he 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 was going to instead just do kind of zoom in and, and 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 do in full, you know, sort of full length versions of some of the great stories, right? Okay, um, so, uh, so what else happens then, right? Then he he comes back to it, right? He stops doing that, and he begins this new mode, right? What I call the plot summary mode, right? Where he was doing this sort of chronological survey. It wasn't uh, the the sort of the the fiction of the stories as he originally did them in the Book of Lost Tales. Was there was a frame narrative of a human who had made it to Elvenholm, right? Who had made it to Toleresia and was hearing the stories from the elves there, right? So it was stories narrated by the elves, right? Set within this frame of the human guy who was listening to all these stories. And of course, ultimately bringing them back, and that explained how these stories came to be in circulation, right? And how we ever came to hear about them at all. Um, he had abandoned that, or at least left behind. I won't say abandoned, but he had left behind uh, that trope, that uh, that concept, and instead had this 
overarching narrative, but the overarching narrative that was set in what Christopher Tolkien calls an epitomizing style, um, and what I call plot summary mode, right? Where he's not really trying to to narrate all of the story in detail, he's just sort of giving this overview. Um, and we were looking at especially during the shaping of Middle Earth class, um, which is which tells when he when he did when he came back to this and started doing this new mode, which was in the early 1930s, really at the same time that he's working on the Hobbit. He starts doing these things, um, and he really kind of develops the style and really kind of kind of inhabits it. After he finishes the Hobbit, he returns uh, to the older material, and the big thing that happens there is the Lost Road, right? His unfinished, his new unfinished novel, The Lost Road, which essentially brings in the story of the fall of Numenor, and the fall of Numenor becomes a kind of sequel to the other stories that he had written before, but it kind of works backward and changes a whole bunch of things. So he kind of then takes that material and says, all right, I'm going to work this stuff up for publication because he wants, um, he wants the, 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 the Silmarillion to get published, right? So he, having gotten the Hobbit published, right? And the end, so he's, he's, he's now, he's now broken the ice, right, as far as publication is concerned, and so now he's going to try and get the Silmarillion published. So he's working up the Silmarillion actively for publication. And one of, and that's the, the primary thing that we studied in the volume of the history of Middle-earth called The Lost Road, the material of The Lost Road, which is the name of that unfinished novel, the time travel Numenor novel, um, is of course a big part of The Lost Road. But by pages, the bulk of the History of Middle-earth volume titled The Lost Road and Other Writings. The other writings uh, are, 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 are much longer. And what they are is the Silmarillion that Tolkien was preparing for publication. But it's not like the published Silmarillion as we came to know it. And what's most different about it is that it contains several different kinds of text. Um, the music of the Ainur, right? The Ainur Lindelay is there. We get the Aino Lindale, and that's sort of a detached thing. But we also get the Embarcanta, which Christopher Tolkien published in The Shaping of Middle-earth, though he later said, actually, it, I really should have saved that for The Lost Road. It belongs in that period. The Embarcanta, which is a description of, like, the cosmos and how the world works, right? Um, you get the annals, right? The annals of Valinor and the annals of Beleriand, so just a year-by-year register of the events, uh, you know, from you know, from the beginning uh, of Arda all the way up uh, through, really through the end of the First Age, and then through uh, the War of the Last Alliance, sort of. Though it's not the War of the Last Alliance isn't yet in its in its uh, final form. Um, so we get the Annals, the Ainulindale, the the Embarcanta, the Annals of of Valinor, the Annals of Beleriand, and then we get. Um, uh, we get the Hlamas, right? L-H-A-M-M-A-S, which is an account of tongues. Uh, so it's this long account of all the interrelationships of all of the different languages of Middle-earth, right? Um, and that's a, it's a lot of fun. I, uh, I, again, I, I, if you want to know more about that, it's, um, uh, I, that's, there were a couple of class sessions I did on that in the Lost Road. Um, look for the, the, episode in the Lost Road class called The Tree of Tongues and the one after that. Uh, I don't think I got to it in the one that I named after it. But anyway, um, then after all that, he does the new Quenta, right? The, the new Quenta Silmarillion, which is that sort of the plot summary version, which is very much like what the published Silmarillion later on came to be. All of that put together. This was all the stuff that he then pushes to the publisher and is like, okay, here's the Silmarillion. Let's do this. 
Now, of course, it wasn't finished. He didn't get all the way through the Quinta, but he got all that other stuff, and it was, it was, this is, it's like close-ish, right, to publication form. Um, and so two things are going on at the same time. He's finishing this stuff. He's in the middle of writing the Quinta Silmarillion, right, the 1937 Quinta Silmarillion. And he sends it to the, he's, he's, he's sent it off to the publisher, and he keeps writing it while it's at the publisher, right? Two things happen at the same time. First, the publisher rejects it. They don't like it. And I can't blame them, right? It's not that it isn't awesome, because it's kind of awesome, right? Um, it's, it, it is really awesome. But it's awesome in an extremely, like, geeky way. Like, I find it awesome because I already love Tolkien and am, in, and am invested in Tolkien. You know, I, I really... I, I, I can't say the publisher was wrong to reject this. Like, how many copies would they have sold, right? I mean, people who just knew The Hobbit... Um, would uh, people who just just read The Hobbit would certainly not be interested. I mean, or not certainly, but the odds that they would be. I mean, if if they go to the oh another book by Tolkien, let us pick this up, and they get the llamas, right? The account of tongues, right? I mean, they're going to be like, what the heck is this, right? I mean, I remember having that that uh, that reaction to the published Silmarillion, which is much easier than what Tolkien was trying to get published. Um, you know, when I first discovered the Silmarillion at age like fourteen or something like that. Um, but um, anyway, so okay, so uh, the um, the publisher rejects it, but also the publisher is pressing for a for a sequel, right, to The Hobbit. So he stops doing the Quenta in the middle, and he turns instead to chapter one of the Lord of the Rings. So the first bit that we're going to talk about tonight, the first version of the long expected party um, chapter is the thing that he, so he's just, so he's just, I mean, imagine, I imagine the stack of, of papers that is the Quintus Silmarillion sitting right there, right? And he's got a, a, another sheet of paper, probably a recycled sheet of paper. That is a reused sheet of paper. Uh, and he sits down and he starts writing about the anticipation of Bilbo Baggins's birthday party, right? Um, and I emphasize this because I think it's really important to remember that's where his brain was, right? His brain is in the middle of the Quintus Silmarillion when he sits down to write. And he really struggled with the first chapter. And he talks about this, if you read his letters, he talks about this quite a bit. Um, how he, you know, is like, I'm afraid it's not progressing. And he talks about how he'd like kind of blown his wad on The Hobbit, right? He's like, I used, I was too profligate in The Hobbit, right? I was too, I, I, I was too prodigal. I think that's his word. Um, that he, he had used up all of the themes and motifs and ideas and stuff that he had, all of his favorite uh, things. Um, uh, so, um, yeah, he, he, he said he basically didn't have any, he said it was never meant to have a sequel. I didn't save anything, right? I don't really know what to do. Um, and obviously that's like an issue, right? That's, um, uh, that's, that's, but, um, but I think it's not just that, right? I, 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 again, I think when we, when we look at it in context, it seems to me pretty clear that this is a really hard, you know, he's, he's, well, let me just say it a different way. I would not be surprised if he were kind of, you know, stripping his gears, his mental gears a little bit, trying to shift, uh, back down into Hobbit gear after coming out of the middle of the Quintus Silmarillion. Um, you know, he had just been writing about Baron and Luthien, 
right? Uh, you know, a full, nice, long version of Baron and Luthien, which he had to shorten and shorten and shorten. Um, some of which we may be getting for the first time in the new Baron and Luthien coming out next year. Anyway, it's it's not easy, right? And so one of the things that I'm very interested to look at as we approach this is... Can we see any evidence of this? What do we see? Knowing that this is where he is, what do we, what do we, what do we notice? I mean, I don't want to force that. I want to be like hunting for it, like looking for the Silmarillion under every, under every leaf here as we turn uh, to the long expected party. But it's, it's interesting. It's out there right now. Um, one last thing to um, uh, emphasize a note on the Hobbit. And I, this is stuff I've said several times before. So I hope those of you who heard me say this before will bear with me. Uh, but it's important, I think, to repeat because it's really important for context uh, in trying to understand where, especially again, thinking about the Silmarillion as I just was, um, the Hobbit. So the Hobbit is not connected to the Silmarillion. As he, he, he started doing that in the very first uh, drafts of the Hobbit, the very, the, the, the very first draft of the first chapter of the Hobbit, we can see a good deal of evidence uh, that he was thinking about the older stuff, like more, more, it was a reference to Baron and Luthien. Like we're told exactly how many years after, uh, Baron and Luthien's taking of the jewel that Bilbo sets out from Bag End in, in one of the early drafts of the Hobbit, he takes that out. Right. Um, so he, uh, he kind of flirts with it at the beginning, but then he decides, no, 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 this is not going to be, I'm not going to try to make this contiguous. Right. I'm, uh, that's, and so the Hobbit is its own thing. Right um, now, wait. You'll say, "What about Elrond? What about what about uh, uh, um, you know the Gondolin? Right, and all these other things." Um, no, it's not the Silmarillion. It's ideas that are lifted from the Silmarillion. Right. He's uh, the the image that I often use is he's he's recycling material. Right. Remember, at this point, the Silmarillion stuff has been rejected by the publishers twice now, twice. Right. Um, okay. No. Only once when he was doing The Hobbit. Right, sorry, 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 sorry. I'm getting ahead of myself. Twice when he was writing The Lord of the Rings. When he was writing The Hobbit, it had only been... But it had been rejected already once, right? So he's not sure this stuff is ever going to see the light of day. And anyway, it's still in a not anything like a publishable form in any case at that point. Um, so he has these ideas and he really likes them. So it's, it's, it's very clear. The elven king of Mirkwood is Thingol of Doriath recycled, right? It's very clear that Elrond of Rivendell is Elrond of the Silmarillion recycled, right? It's clear that Gondolin is Gondolin recycled, but it's not exactly the same. If you look at the description of Elrond, you look at the description of Gondolin, the things said about them in The Hobbit don't fit what was true of them in the Silmarillion. It's not the same story. Um, The Arkenstone, clearly a recycled Silmaril in the same way, right? It's not a Silmaril, but but it's a recycled Silmaril. It's obviously inspired by the Silmaril. Even the name, the Arkenstone, is derived uh, from the Old Norse slash Anglo-Saxon version of the name for Silmaril. Like when Arkenstana is the translation. Uh, When Tolkien did a translation of the Silmarillion material into Anglo-Saxon, because, I mean, obviously, when you're writing something for fun, one of the things you absolutely have to do is not only work out your own private languages and, like, translate bits of it in that language, but then you also need to translate it into Anglo-Saxon because. Right? So, um... Uh, so he did that, and when he translated into translates it into into Anglo-Saxon, Eorkenstana is one of the words that he uses, um, Holy Jewel, uh, to describe um, uh, to describe uh, the Silmarils. Anyway, again, so it's it's 
But it's recycling material. It's not the same. There's still a firewall up between The Hobbit and the Silmarillion material. Right now, here's Christopher Tolkien talking about this. Um, if you read in the introduction, you will have you will have noticed this. The importance of the Hobbit in the history of the evolution of Middle Earth lies then at this time in the fact that it was published and that a sequel to it was demanded. As a result, from the nature of the Lord of the Rings as it evolved, the Hobbit was drawn into Middle Earth and transformed it. But as it stood in 1937, it was not a part of it. Its significance for Middle-earth lies in what it would do, not in what it was. And it's important for us to remember this, right? The Hobbit is drawn in by the Lord of the Rings. The Lord of the Rings is the great moment, the great integration moment, right? The moment when Tolkien brings all these things together. His Silmarillion material, the story of Bilbo in the ring in The Hobbit, right? And this new story that's unfolding. Um, and, he, and, he, and he makes that huge sub-creation that we all know and love, right? And fits all of it in together. Um, but in doing that, he was rather like... If you've read his short story, Leaf by Niggle, you may remember that the painter Niggle, when he began working on his big painting, um, what he tended to, there were a bunch of other paintings that he had begun and left behind before, and you remember what he did with his old paintings, his old smaller paintings, right? He, he, he kept tacking them on to the edges of his big picture, right, and making it all into one big picture, and that's exactly what Tolkien, it's what Tolkien was doing with the Silmarillion material, it's what he's doing with The Hobbit as he's writing The Lord of the Rings. The Hobbit itself is one of these separate smaller pictures that gets kind of pasted in and sort of stitched into uh, and, and, and integrated in the end brilliantly into the Lord of the Rings story. But this is, we are accustomed, um, especially, um, no, I mean, really, pretty much everybody is accustomed to, you know, coming to the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings and thinking of them as a, as a unit, right? Um, the way in which Tolkien integrated the Hobbit into the, into the Middle Earth story is so convincing and so brilliant that we, like, forget that it happened, right? We, we sort of lose track of that. Um, and it's hard to kind of even project our minds back into a state of not thinking of them as being, uh, uh, being connected in that way. Uh, so, but it's important to remember that that was the case, right? Okay. Um, Erica is making fun of me, as she is wont to do, for only covering one slide uh, so far in 45 minutes. Um, I will have my chance, Erica. Wait until you see. Okay. Um, one more side note before we begin to look at the first version of chapter one. Um, uh, here's... Um, this is, uh, this, is, this, is, this is not Christopher. This is a quotation from one of the letters. This is, so this is Tolkien writing. I think it is plain that a sequel or successor to The Hobbit is called for. I promise to give this thought and attention. This is him talking to his publisher, of course. But I am sure you will sympathize when I say that the construction of elaborate and consistent mythology and two languages rather occupies the mind, and the Silmarils are in my heart, so that goodness knows what will happen. Mr. Baggins began as a comic tale among conventional Grimm's fairy tale dwarves and got drawn into the edge of it, so that even Sauron the Terrible peeped over the edge. And what more can hobbits do? They can be comic, but their comedy is suburban, unless it is set against things more elemental. Okay, so this is Tolkien, these are Tolkien's. Th- now, one thing always to remember. Um, 
one of the uh, one of the things that I have learned, and I've been reminded of this many times by a very very wise Tolkien scholar. Uh, I, I refer, of course, to Dr. Verlin Flieger, um, one of the just one of the one of the great uh, matriarchs of Tolkien studies, um, and uh, 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 and uh, whom I've been fortunate to have as a colleague here uh, at Mythgard and Signum. Anyway, one of the things that Verlin Flieger always says when you're reading the letters. Uh, always remember who he's writing to. People often read the letters and make the mistake of reading the letters as like the pure, unfiltered, spontaneous thoughts of Tolkien's mind and heart, right? I I think that sometimes we see that in his letters, but not always. Remember, these letters are... and, And this is really... If you read the... Uh, letters cover to cover, you can begin to hear this, right? You hear how he... In fact, because sometimes you can hear him talk about the same subject back to back to two different people and talk about them in very different ways, right? Um, When he's talking to his publisher, he is well aware of the fact that he's talking to his publisher, right? Uh, So you always have to remember um, who he's talking to and and to keep that in mind when you're thinking about what he's saying here. Um, But... uh, but okay. Um, uh, oh, uh, Jared is asking a good question. When was the second edition of The Hobbit that changed the riddles in the dark chapter? Later. Later. Much later. Um, he's going to have written mm, the entire Lord of the Rings before that happens. Okay. Um, the rewriting of chapter five of The Hobbit uh, is a post-Lord of the Rings thing. It was explicitly done um, to sort of connect the Hobbit more closely to the Lord of the Rings. Um, but yeah, no, we're, we're not, he has not written that yet. Great question, Jared. Thanks for asking that. Um, uh, okay. Um, yeah, Nancy, it, it is, Nancy says, who wouldn't sympathize with getting distracted by the construction of languages and mythology? Uh, you, of course, you, Nancy, you notice what he's doing here. This is like a guilt trip. Not quite a guilt trip. That's probably not quite fair. But this is... Uh, he's, he's like, nudging his publisher, right? If only I could get this Silmarillion thing off my chest, <clears throat> I could probably get on with a sequel, right? So if you really want a sequel, gosh, you know what... You could publish the Silmarillion, and then my mind would be clear. I mean, in my mind, that's part of the subtext of this, right? So again, this is why I say in this letter, really important to remember wh- whom he's writing to here. Um, but um, uh, but anyway, notice the question that he has here. When you know what he chooses to emphasize, apart from like the importance of the Silmarillion, what he chooses to emphasize when he's talking about his struggles with writing a sequel, right? What more can hobbits do? What more can hobbits do? I mean, Bilbo was fun, right? Um, he began, he began, Mr. Baggins began as a comic tale, right? And got drawn into the edge of the great, you know, the elaborate and consistent mythology, right? Um, but what else can they do? They can be comic, but it has to be set against something more elemental, right? Um, in order for them to, what, not be suburban, right? Not just to be sort of small town laughs, right? Um, he doesn't really know. Um, he, he says he doesn't really know what to do or where to go. Um So let's look at his, in the light of this, let's look at his first attempt. Okay. Here we have 
the first paragraph of the first draft of the first chapter of The Lord of the Rings, right? Tolkien sets pen to paper and writes, win M, and then stops, right? Now, the first time I read that, uh, you remember that bit? We actually, I love the uh, facsimile of that first draft page, right? Which is so beautifully written. Um, anyway, so uh, at first I got really excited. I'm like, ooh, was it going to be about somebody else whose name began with an M? And then I was like, uh, no, it's probably Mr. Baggins is probably what he was about to write and then changed it to Bilbo. So probably not as exciting as I initially thought. But anyway, okay. When Bilbo, son of Bungo, of the family of Baggins, had celebrated, changed to, prepared to celebrate his 70th birthday, there was for a day or two some talk in the neighborhood. Now it's done. First sentence. What do we notice in the first sentence? Notice one interesting thing. When he starts writing... When he starts writing sentence one, he hadn't even decided on the subject of the chapter, right? This chapter, of course, is going to be about the party, about the birthday party, right? And that is the one thing that all of the drafts of chapter one have in common, is that the centerpiece is the birthday party, which leads to the the disappearance, right? So uh, this is the, this is how we're, we're going to get the departure from the Shire. Right, that's the one thing that these all ha- had in common. But notice that's not his first impulse. He didn't sit down to write that. It seems based on the evidence, right? He first wrote when Bilbo had celebrated his seventieth birthday. Right. Um, so he was just going to have him set out. I guess I don't. I mean, we have no idea where it was going to go. But that, to me, uh, and again, if you. One of the things that becomes super clear when studying this book, The Return of the Shadow, I mean, um, Tolkien had no idea where he was going. Absolutely no idea, right? Um, he, this, the, the Lord of the Rings was a voyage of discovery for him all the way through. He talks like that all the time, right? And in his letters, you can read him talking like that. And I know when I first read Tolkien talking like that, I, um, I didn't... Well, I didn't exactly believe him, right? I mean, I, I kind of was was wondering how much of that was just like, well, that's how authors talk, right? Um, you know, like for false modesty or something like that, right? Like, I don't want to make it sound like I'm some super genius who had the whole thing worked out in advance, right? I just, nah, I just kind of tossed it off, right? Um, but no, he, it's obviously and perfectly true that he didn't know where he was going, right? So when he wrote the first sentence, he didn't even know what chapter one was going to be be about, it seems. And he changed his mind halfway. Oh, Prepared to celebrate. Yeah, okay, so let's, let's actually talk about the birthday party. All right, yeah, let's do that. Now, of course, another thing that several of you are noticing is that, as Veronica says, his age is, his age is normal, right? Um, that is, uh, uh, he's, not a, he's not 111, Veronica, as you say. He's only, he's only 70, right? And this does a couple different things, right? On the one hand, it certainly opens up the possibility that Bilbo's going to be the hero, Again, right? It seems possible, anyway, that he would be the hero. He seemed pretty spry at 50, right? He can probably still get around at 70. Um, but, of course, the other thing is that it, it's, it's you know, the sequel takes place 20 years later, right? He, he's 50 when, uh, when The Hobbit happens. Now he's 70. So there's been a gap of time, but not a generational gap of time. Right. Um, so okay. So that's an interesting. That's an interesting sort of uh, sort of impulse. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, 
Interesting. Yeah, Yana suggests that 71 seems roughly the equivalent in human years as 111 becomes in Hobbit years later on. Maybe. Maybe. I'm not sure about that. I mean, I, there's a sense, I think, that 50 is already... Um, that 50 isn't as much in Hobbit years, even in The Hobbit, as 50 is in human years. Um, so that discrepancy, I think, is already... Um, uh, uh, is already somewhat there, I think, but perhaps not, um, because remember, it's not going to be long after this when we're going to get, when Bilbo's going to suddenly jump up to 144, right? Um, and presumably be still alive. So clearly the idea of hobbits aging more slowly is, is, is at least coming very soon if it's not there already. Um, uh, but, um, Anyway, and uh, no, Arthur, I don't see any evidence of the concept of ring-induced longevity. Um, we'll look at every reference to the ring in this first chapter, um, and uh, I don't see any reason to think that that's on his mind at all yet. Um, okay. Um, yes, good, Stephen. Stephen is recalling that uh, uh, it, it, in some of the versions he mentions that 70 is a, b- is a bit late for marriage, right? Um, but not super late, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, okay, anyway, let's carry on. We got as far as the first sentence here. He had once had a little fleeting fame among the people of Hobbiton and Bywater. He had disappeared after breakfast one April 30th and had not reappeared until lunchtime on June 22nd of the following year, a very odd proceeding for which he had never given any good reason and of which he wrote a nonsensical account. After that, he returned to normal ways, and the shaken confidence of the district was gradually restored, especially as Bilbo seemed, by some unexplained method, to have become more than comfortably off, if not positively wealthy. Indeed, it was the magnificence of the party, rather than the fleeting fame, that first caused the talk. After all, that other odd business had happened some twenty years before, and was becoming decently forgotten. Right? Okay, so the rest of the paragraph... Um... Uh... The, the rest of the paragraph focuses on... We, we get this sort of the return of the Hobbit normal, right? Remember, we got this with Bilbo in Chapter 1 and then again in Chapter 19 of The, of, of the Hobbit, right? Where he was, uh, he was a normal Hobbit, right? He was totally predictable and, and respectable, and then he lost his neighbor's respect, right? When he went off on adventures and came back, changed Hobbit, uh, you know... Uh, um, uh, as you know, something has happened to him, right? As Gandalf says, you are not the hobbit that you were, right? And so he lost the neighbor's respect, but he gained, well, we'll see if he gains anything, right? Says uh, the narrator at the beginning. Um, and we do, right? We do see that he gains certain things. In addition to like a magic ring and some gold, um, he gains lots of other things. Now, several of you are really taken by the reference, uh, you know, Jorge and uh, Nancy, to the nonsensical account, right? Uh, really, uh, uh, which of course is The Hobbit, right? So we have an explicit reference to the earlier book, right? A slighting reference, right? Because we're seeing it from the framework of this mainstream, uh, uh, no-nonsense, sort of boring Hobbit society. Right, and that's clearly the frame of the whole rest of that paragraph. Um, his fame was fleeting, right? He's not; he hasn't remained strange, um, and uh, his disappearance ha- has become decently forgotten, right? Um, and the shaken confidence of the district has been restored, right? So, um, uh, so all of this is. Uh, 
uh, is 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 clearly establishing that, right? So okay, so 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 where do we go next? Bilbo has his party, right? And it's a spectacular party, and it's awesome. We spend some time talking about how wonderful the party is um, until we get to the unsettling end of the party. I have called you all together, Bilbo went on when the last cheer died away, and something in his voice made a few of the Tooks prick up their ears. First of all, to tell you that I am immensely fond of you, and that seventy years is too short a time to live among such excellent and charming hobbits. Hear, hear! I don't know half of you half as well as I should like, and less than half of you half as well as you deserve. Notice he doesn't say, I like less than half of you. He just, he's, it's in the initial version is, I know half of you as well, and less than half of you, I know half as well as you deserve. Um, in other words, it's, it's, it's less insulting the first, the, the first time through. No cheers, a few claps. Most of them were trying to work it out. Secondly, to celebrate my birthday and the 20th year of my return. An uncomfortable rustle. Nobody wants to, it's been decently forgotten, Bilbo. Let's not mention that. Lastly, to make an announcement. He said this very loud, and everybody sat up who could. Goodbye. I am going away after dinner. Also, I am going to get married. He sat down. The silence was flabbergastation. It was broken only by Mr. Proudfoot, who kicked over the table. Mrs. Proudfoot choked in the middle of a drink. Okay. What do you see? What do you notice? Now, by the way, I want to invite you, uh, if there are observations, a, a particular line that jumps out to you or a phrase that you think is important, observation that you have, go ahead and be typing that. that when I, I always read the passages aloud. Um, and uh, so it, the, the time in which I'm reading them aloud is a perfect opportunity uh, to start typing your observations. Uh, yeah, a bunch of people are... Um, uh, uh, Loving the word flabbergastation, yeah, it's uh, it's it's a classic, right? Um, uh, like bewildered and bewildered from the Hobbit. But notice how similar, how closely he is adopting the tone of the Hobbit here, right? Flabbergastation, right? Very like bewildered and bewildered, right? Um, confusticate and bebother these dwarves, right? Um, it's not just like the tone of the Hobbit; it's like the tone of Chapter One of the Hobbit in particular. Um, and uh, even recalling that, you know, again, the sort of the Hobbit society frame that we get in chapter one of The Hobbit. So he's clearly, he, he's, he's clearly making an effort, right, to adopt the same mode and continue in the same way that he was before. But of course, the flabbergastation of very many of you, right, uh, is the... Um, the, 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 no, first of all, a side note. Several of you are observing, and you're absolutely right. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna uh, talk too much about it, but you're absolutely right to observe what a striking lot of this made it into the final draft, right? I mean, this is, he's gonna rewrite chapter one so many times, right? And yet, you can see a whole bunch of things, from the overall shape of the description of the party to many of the details. You know, Sarah, as you're pointing out, the proud foot, proud, proud foots, proud feet thing, right? Um, the people dancing up on the table, the, I mean, all of this stuff, right? Um, uh, okay, not everything, but a very great deal of it is going to make it in very recognizable form, if not, and, and some phrases, of course, that you will remember word for word, um, uh, make it into the final draft. That's pretty remarkable. Um, it is tempting here to say, like, 
ah, again, credit Tolkien for the genius of, like, he, he, like, had this vision and, 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 uh, you know, so, like, it's, it's already, even though it's going to change, right, there, some elements of it are already there. I think it's the other way around, right? It's not that he foresaw the published version at this point. It's that as he revises, he holds on. Tolkien is immensely conservative in his revisions. Uh, he loved going back and starting things over, but when he does go back and start things over, he, 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 he's happy to go back and rewrite, but he rarely leaves stuff entirely behind. Um, so it is very typical of Tolkien to, no matter how many times he rewrites chapter one, uh, he's, he's never going to forget about the earlier chapter one material, and a lot of it's going to stick um, all the way through, as you guys can see. But okay, all right. Um, uh, yeah, um, several of you are describing Carita's description. She says, uh, when he said, uh, I am going to get, also I am going to get married, she said she tilted her head uh, like a dog hearing a, hearing a dog whistle. Um, yeah, that's the, um, if there's, a, if there's a, a, a spot that makes us all sit up, who still can, right? In the, it's it's that like also I am going to get married. Really? Okay. All right. Didn't see that one coming. Um, again, certainly not if we uh, uh, are just judging by the by the published book. So, um, Philip, I agree with you. Philip says the announcement is a bit of a letdown. Really, right? I mean, yeah, it's, I'm going to make an announcement, right? I'm going away after dinner. Okay, I mean, like his departure is. It's not like that's not an. It's not. It's not. It's not like it's not a legitimate announcement, right? Both of the things, right? I'm. I'm, I'm leaving forever. Oh, he doesn't say forever. I'm leaving, right? I'm leaving, and I'm going to get married, right? Those are both announcements, right? Um, but they're still not what we necessarily would have expected, right? Um, and notice there's not the same kind of drama. I'm going away after dinner. Right, um, no theatrical vanishing trick in front of everybody. Right, no joke in that way that we get later on. Right, um, uh, and yes, good. As we're gonna, we're gonna. Yes, uh, James and Stephen and Yana were just, uh, um, uh, were just talking about that. Now, Jorge, great observation. Jorge points out that leaving again is a is a huge deal, right? Yeah, exactly, Jorge. And But that's why it's a big deal, right? What makes it a big... Remember, he has just said it's the 20th anniversary of of, uh, of my my other journey, right? The 20th uh, the 20th year of my return. And they all get uncomfortable, right? Because you're not supposed to mention that. And then he's like, I'm doing it again. Bye-bye, right? Um, that's the that's the heart. And Jorge, I agree with you. It's the parallel, right? I, I I went on an adventure once. You thought it was just when you thought it was safe, just when you thought I was respectable. I'm gonna go off again, and I'm gonna lose all your opinions again. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna buck society a second time. Um, and that I think, Kimber, is the answer to your question: Why is the audience surprised to silence? Because I mean, obviously, anyone would think you'd want that kind of thing hushed up. Right, and here, like society has been so gracious as to overlook this very serious blemish on Mr. Bilbo's character, right? And now here he goes, not only bringing it up in public, but repeating it overtly, right? And that—that that is shocking. Um, yeah, good. So 
and he's going to get married. Well, let's, let's carry on. That's that. It mere, this is right after that same passage. It merely serves to explain that Bilbo Baggins got married and had many children because I am going to tell you a story about one of his descendants, and if you had only read his memoirs up to the date of Balin's visit, ten years at least before this birthday party, you might have been puzzled. As a matter of fact, Bilbo Baggins disappeared silently and unnoticed. The ring was in his hand, even while he made his speech, in the middle of the confused outburst of talk that followed the flabbergasted silence. He was never seen in Hobbiton again. We get another reference to The Hobbit, right? The published Hobbit, right? Uh, more in even clearer framework. It's, so it's 20 years after he returned, and it's 10 years after Balin and Gandalf's visit, which ends chapter 19 of The Hobbit, right? In The Hobbit, of course, it doesn't specify how long it was between Bilbo's return and the visit of Balin and Gandalf, right? Um, we're now told that it was about 10 years, right? And it's now 10 years again after that. Um, but this is where the sudden shift happens. The sudden shift that we don't have much reason to suspect leading up to this moment, right? This isn't Bilbo's story. The important... So that thing which seems thrown in, also I'm going to get married, turns out to be the entire point of the whole party, Right? He's going to go off, he's going to get married, and presumably have kids, because the actual protagonist of our Hobbit sequel is going to be one of his descendants. Children? I don't know. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Jared says this beginning is very sequel-ish. Yeah, it is. And Jared, it's... Yeah, sort of very self-consciously so, right? I mean, this is a guy who is sitting down to write a sequel. Look at the, you know, the this is the second time, right, that he has made that explicit link back to The Hobbit, right, to make sure that we're, you know, you remember where we were? Okay, we're moving on from that, right? Um, uh, the, um, uh, but yeah, he doesn't, he doesn't shock the partygoers, Right. What's, I skipped over that before. Several of you were pointing that out, but I, and I skipped over it before, and I don't want to. No theatricality, right? The shock is in the announcement. I'm going away. And, oh, and P.S. I'm getting married, right? Um, but the sh- he's not trying to shock and appall his neighbors, right? He's not playing a joke on them. He's not going to theatrically reveal or sort of semi-reveal the ring. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Nancy Fosberg is saying, previously, on The Hobbit. Right, yeah, the, the, there there are moments that do kind of sound like that. Um, uh, yeah, and, uh, you know, Nicole, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I want to try as much as I can to avoid what I call crit fic, that is trying to not just talk about what's there in the story, but sort of invent theories or stories about what Tolkien was doing and what led him to write it in this particular way, you're always on really dangerous ground when you do that. One is so very often, in fact, even usually wrong, um, uh, that it's often not very useful. But anyway, um, nevertheless, it's... um, uh, It is... Interesting, certainly, Nicole, that at this point, you know, he's he's trying to tear himself away from the Silmarillion. He's 
setting out to try to do um, uh, this sequel, and it does it 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 feels forced, right? Um, like he's he's really kind of grinding through this whole sequel business. Uh, the ostentation with which he keeps coming back to this, right, makes it seem like it, it, he's kind of laboring at it. You know, do I only say that because we have the letter in which he says he was laboring at it? You know, I don't know. I mean, it's hard to it's hard to be objective when you're given that kind of information. But uh, um, but anyway, I think you know, knowing that, I think we can kind of we can kind of see that happening there a little bit. Um, uh, yes, Tomas, the whole concerning Hobbit's portion is 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 later. Yes, later. Um, uh, it's not, so this is, this is, this is, this is where it begins. Yeah, none of that, none of that was there. Forget about, forget about, uh, concerning hobbits. Um, the whole, the whole prologue to the Fellowship of the Ring. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, good. Let's keep going. This is, again, carrying on, right? Tolkien the narrator carrying on. There, I suppose, it has become all too plain. The fact is, in spite of his after-dinner speech, he had grown suddenly very tired of them all. The Tookishness, not of course that all Tooks ever had much of, of this wayward quality, had quite suddenly and uncomfortably come to life again. Also another secret. After he had blowed his last fifty ducats on the party, he had not got any money or jewelry left, except the ring, and the gold buttons on his waistcoat. He had spent it all in twenty years, even the proceeds of his beautiful, illegible word, which he had sold a few years back. Okay, so the narrator is going to carry on explaining, right? So, several things of interest here, right? First, the Tookishness thing, right? So we get the Tookishness again. Notice him again coming back to a theme from The Hobbit. Again, chapter one of the sequel going back very directly to chapter one uh, of, uh, of The Hobbit, right? But um, notice how he's not just repeating, right? He's changing as well. Um, his Tookishness is coming out again. In The Hobbit, you'll remember, he, he got something queer in his makeup from the Took side, right? But it's mingled with his Baggins side. Um, and in The Hobbit, we are given to believe... Right, we're given to understand that the Tookishness of Bilbo is it's only part of his makeup, right? And so when he feels Tookish, his Tookishness is well, he's he's not a hundred percent, he's only fifty percent took, right? So even the Tookishness that he feels, um you get the impression that, that pure blood tooks, right, are probably pushed even further than Bilbo ends up being pushed, right? That he is less um less Tookish than, like, his pure Took relations. Um, but here we find that not to be the case, right? He sort of reversed that. Not, of course, that all Tooks ever had much of this wayward quality. Implication, to me, is Bilbo is more Tookish than average, right? He is not, he is not only, like, a shadow of a Took, right? Or, like, half of a Took. He is, he is extraordinarily Tookish, Right, he leads the took the pack in Tookishness, um, so his Tookishness is awakening, is awakening, and that's uh, that's where we, uh, uh, that's where he's that that's where he's going. What did he sell? Yeah, I uh, Philip Dennis. I'm thinking. 
Christopher struggled with that word. He said he didn't know his best guess because he was clearly thinking of the mithril coat too. And he was so, so his, his best speculation, Christopher's is arms. Um, but it, it, it does, it's hard to think of what else he would have been selling. Right. Um, uh, but yeah, he presumably pawned his, his, uh, his, uh, his, his silver mail. Which isn't Mithril yet, by the way. Um, Mithril is a Lord of the Rings concept, um, and it gets edited back into The Hobbit. Um, so the reference to Mithril uh, in chapter 14 uh, of The Hobbit is not in the 1937 version. So uh, it's just silver steel. Um, anyway, um, so uh, so yeah, probably it could be Sting, Dennis. It's possible. Those are really, I mean, his sword. Or his arms, or the you know his his uh, his 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 mithril coat are really the only two things that he has to pawn, other than the ring, which we're told explicitly he still has. So he's got poor, right? So so why did he actually leave, Mister Narrator? Um, one because his his tookishness reawakes, and he's tired. He doesn't want to be respected anymore, right? He wants out. Um, we see Bilbo here rejecting Hobbit society in a way in which he never did. Right, he leaves Bag End rather spontaneously in the Hobbit, and he's always thinking about it. Right, his mind is always going back to that Bag ish life that he left behind, and he's eager to return. It's a there and back again story. This is not a there and back again. So we're not having him go on another there and back again journey. He's going out without the intention, it seems, of returning. He's done. He's retiring, retiring to a life of adventure, right? Leaving behind the dull existence and going off into the... So it's like the opposite of a retirement, you could argue, but apparently Bilbo doesn't think about it that way. Um, so, um, uh, yeah, so, um, so, so that's one thing, right? He's leaving society behind entirely. He's also completely run out of money, right? So is that relevant? Does that have to do with what's going on? Well, let's let's look at the transition into chapter two. So now Bilbo said before he disappeared, I'm going to get married. He thought that that, together with all the fuss about the house or hole and furniture, would keep them all busy and satisfied for a long while so that no one would bother to hunt for him for a bit. And he was right, or nearly right. So all that stuff about leaving all of the parcels and, and with tags attached to things and everything around his hole, right, is just a th- to keep them occupied. Everyone's going to be digging through and be like, what did I get? And what, what kind of insult did he attach to it, right? Um, uh, and all that's, they're going to be so caught up in all that stuff that he's going to get a good head start before the hunt uh, is, is going to be out for him, right? And he was right. It did, or, or, or nearly right. For no one ever bothered to hunt for him at all, right? Turns out he needn't have been worried about there being a hue and cry, right? Uh, they decided he had gone mad and run off till he met a pool or a river or a steep fall, and there was one Baggins the less. Most of them, that is. He was deeply regretted by a few of his younger friends, of course. Angelica and Saradoc? I don't know who that was. But he had not said goodbye to all of them. Oh, no. That is easily explained. But he had not said goodbye to all of them. Oh, no. That is easily explained. And this seems to be, Christopher argues, this is the transition into chapter two. Right? That's meant to be the end of chapter one. And then chapter two begins with the explanation. Um, so it sounds like, as far as we can tell, he's, me- he's not going to go off alone this time. Right? He's going off with some other hobbits. Right, he he hadn't said goodbye to all of them, so he's left Hobbiton, but he's not left all hobbits. Um, uh, now is it uh, um, is it his wife we're meant to be thinking of? 
he had not said goodbye to all of them? Maybe. We don't know that he had picked out a wife, right? Um, it sounds like, that as the narrator makes it sound here, like his, um, his statement about getting married was totally spontaneous, right? He had not, in fact, anticipated marriage, but it just kind of came to him as like it was like a thing to say. Um, because, of course, in the in the uh, Christopher explains afterwards that Hobbit weddings are very peculiar, right? Um, that it's normal for Hobbits to get married. It's like they just they sneak off like Hobbits elope as a rule. Right. So if somebody just vanishes and and especially if like, you know, uh, a prospective spouse also vanishes at about the same time. They're like, oh, they must have gotten married, right? And they'll come back eventually, right? Apparently, that's a thing that happens, right? Um, uh, and uh, yeah, Nancy says I enjoyed this bit of Hobbit anthropology, but I don't suppose I should st- I should think of it still being present later. Yeah, there's no evidence of it of that concept surviving into the later versions of the story. Um, Josh is suggesting maybe Bilbo was hoping for a fairy wife. Uh, maybe, maybe. Uh, I mean, we don't know if he's got his eyes on any particular fairy. Of course, for those of you who don't remember, fairy is just a synonym of elf. Right, so uh, maybe there's some elf lass out there that uh, uh, that 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 Bilbo has a crush on. Who knows? But um, uh, probably not, because that's absurd, Josh. Absurd. The idea of Hobbit a Hobbit taking a fairy wife is absurd. Um, but um, uh, anyway, <clears throat> so uh, but of course the, the 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 other Hobbits notice this. They're like, no one else is missing, right? There aren't any girls missing, so he's presumably not married. Um, but of course, this is what leads him to. That's what leads them to speculate that the poor Mrs. Baggins was hideously ugly, right? Uh, so this legend grows of the uh, the hideously ugly Mr. Mrs. Baggins, who is so ugly that Bilbo never returns from his honeymoon, right? From his, like, elopement honeymoon. Um, uh, I, I, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, that's that's there it is right that's part of the theory it's it's part of the lore of mad baggins mad baggins with the ugly wife um but uh, i don't know anyway um uh okay um uh uh kale and i think several others are yes uh, lance says elf chicks only fall for dwarves yes it's true uh and kale corbett is being glad that there aren't any more absurd fictitious love affairs uh uh or that it's no more absurd than fictitious love affairs between elves and dwarves uh yeah arthur i think you were joking about uh, bilbo running off to marry toriel uh as well um but uh, yeah, now Nancy points out that hobbits are a bit mean spirited in this version. Nancy, hobbits are mean spirited all the time. Actually, I mean that's a, that's an element of hobbit culture, and I've I've frequently said that I think a lot of people overlook this. Um, I think a lot of readers want to see the Shire as idyllic, as this like earthly paradise, right, where everyone is happy and contented, and it's just this perfect, lovely, harmonious, restful place, right. Um, and that is the Shire, indeed, of the imaginings of many, I think. But it's not really the Shire that Tolkien describes. Um, there's a lot of mean-spiritedness. There's a lot of um, petty crime, <laughs> right? Not serious crime, um, but um, uh, pettiness. I'll stick with the word petty. Um, uh, it's uh, it's it's 
Yeah, I mean, this is it's it's kind of routine actually um, among hobbits. So it's, um, yeah, that's consistent. Um, but Nancy, it does really come out in this first chapter. I agree. Um, yeah, Matt Shaw says that hobbits are a reflection of small town culture. True enough. Yeah, you can see a lot of the narrow-minded and parochial, Josh. Exactly. Exactly. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Good. Good. Yeah, Joyce was pointing that out too. That the Shire is the small village conformity enforced. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, okay. So, in conclusion, what do we have? Where are we going? Right. Where have we come to, and where are we headed? Right. Okay. So we started off with Bilbo's birthday and his departure, but then we decided, right, halfway through the sentence one, we decided to linger on the party and have the party be the centerpiece of chapter one. So we're we're, we're describing the party, and it's a spectacular party. And at the very end of the chapter, it's revealed that that party is the end of Bilbo's treasure, right? So notice how that establishes the link, further link between this story and the previous story. Right again, it's the sequely thing. Right, just as we have the correspondence between the unexpected party and the long expected party, um, so too we have. This is the this is the very end of Bilbo's earlier adventure. Right, uh, he came home from his adventure and he had suddenly become very well off or even wealthy, um, but now all of his wealth is gone. So with the last of his dragon gold, he throws the big party and now he's back to square one, other than the ring. Right, so he heads off with the ring and apparently with some, uh, with some companions, uh, in time to start the new adventure. So in some ways, the whole thing is really a link back to the Hobbit, right? But then, of course, in the next surprise, we have that it's not going to be about him. Personally, I think that Tolkien himself is still really unclear. If you just take just the internal evidence of this draft. It's totally not clear who the hero of this book is going to be, right? He says, right? He said just a few just a few slides ago. Let's see if we can find it. Where where was it there? Um, uh, yeah, it merely serves to explain that Bilbo Baggins got married and had many children. Because I'm going to tell you a story about one of his descendants, right? And you might be confused, right? If you had just come to this trade from the Hobbit, right? So, okay. So the only reason I'm telling you about Bilbo's part, the only reason we're talking about Bilbo Baggins at all here is to establish the link, right? But it's going to be about one of his descendants. So you can forget about Bilbo now, but as we go through, that does not seem to be true anymore, but he had not said goodbye to all of them. Oh no, that is easily explained, right? Are we going to get the story of his marriage and children and thus to our protagonist? Or is this going to be Bilbo's adventure? It sounds like the end of the chapter is setting up a new Bilbo adventure, in fact. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, it's, that's how it sounds, right? Um, he's going to have traveling companions, and we're going to, chapter two is going to focus on that. So it's, it sounds like we've left the descendant thing behind, possibly, right? That seems to me entirely probable. I think it's it's not at all obvious, right? Um, and uh, yeah, Cecilia, you're absolutely right. Cecilia points out that Bilbo had lost all his money um, and his flat broke. How's it he had so many things to give away, including the silver spoons, yet not to mention his hobbit hole, Cecilia, right? You'd think like, uh, and, and Christopher talks about this, right? That uh, it's odd and never explained why when the Bagginses of Bag End are broke and leaving town, they don't sell bag end, right? And raise money. 
Um, instead, they just like, I'm broke, so I'm going to give away my enormously valuable real estate. Seems like an odd move, right? And he never explains why it is exactly that they're doing that. Or rather, I guess I would say the only explanation that we do get seems to me tied up in the whole tookishness thing, right? He just wants out of there. Um, he doesn't care about the money. He doesn't want more money. Um, at least he doesn't want like the proceeds of a real estate sale, right? He wants to go out on an, on, on an adventure. So off he goes and he, he seems to just kind of wash his hands of the whole deal, right? And sets off with just his ring. Um, Okay. Um, <laughs> James says, I guess those kind of financial decisions are how he ran out of money. Yeah. I get, James, you're right. I got, it's consistent with like somebody who's blown through all of his money, right? Um, Nicole loves how Tolkien wrote, that is easily explained, yet he's toiling just to get this draft down. Yeah. In fact, Nicole, yeah, those, those, those moments are really ironic, right? When he keeps talking about how easy it is to talk about this. And it's clear the more he talks that way, the more, the more clear, the more labored the whole thing really sounds, right? It's exactly those kinds of uh, narratorial interjections that make the thing sound like he's spinning his wheels in the mud still, right? Um, Jared asks, how much is 50 ducats? A lot, apparently. I mean, I don't know. Uh, but, um, I mean, of course the ducat is an actual, you know, currency. Um, but, uh, you know, is the Shire ducat the same thing as like, uh, you know, uh, that like the, is it, is it like the ducats that Shylock is always talking about in measure in the measure for measure, uh, in Merchant of Venice? I don't know, you know, but, uh, anyway, it's like a sum of money. We don't even know, but it's clear that it's a lot, right? Because the party is huge and grandiose and, and it, I mean, everyone is, it's, it's, it's enormous, right? So clearly 50 ducats is a lot of money because he blew his 50 ducats on the party. Um, uh, yeah, we don't know the exchange rate, Jared. Yeah, exactly. I, 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 I'm afraid to say. Um, uh, and but you're right, Yana. It is curious that we get actual currency. Um, uh, and, and Yana points out, it's uh, is it only valid in the Shire? Um, he presumably used it in order to get the gifts from Dale. Well, I mean, I think you know, gold is going to spend in Dale like it would spend in the Shire, right? It's just the the, presumably the the measure right would not you know they wouldn't they wouldn't uh they wouldn't measure the gold in ducats probably in uh um uh in uh um in dale yeah yeah um and it is interesting nancy that that's the currency that he'd choose right um it is interesting I mean, I, I mentioned Merchant of Venice. I can't help but think my daughter in my ducats, right? I, I just, I, I'm, I'm getting Shylock's lines rolling around in my head uh, when I hear the word ducat. Um, I might be, I mean, it might just be me. Like, just because I have that association doesn't mean Tolkien necessarily had that association. But I mean, it's a, it's a, it's like a Shakespeare thing, ducats to me. Right. Um, I know it's an Italian thing, but that's because Shakespeare was adapting Italian stuff all the time. Um, and I don't think we have much reason to believe. Oops, here I'm accidentally moving ahead here. Um, I don't think we have much reason to think that um, uh, that Tolkien was thinking in Italian terms explicitly, that he was thinking Shakespeare seems much more likely. Um, 
Kate Neville asks, what was the currency in the land of the Snurgs? That's a really good question, and I can't remember, Kate. Um, it's been too long since I reread The Marvelous Land of Snurgs. If you've never read The Marvelous Land of Snurgs, do yourself a favor and go read The Marvelous Land of Snurgs. Um, it's uh, one of the texts that came before The Hobbit that seems to have informed and shaped it in some ways, and it's awesome, but I can't remember what the currency is there, Kate. There might have been ducats among the Snurgs. If there were, that uh, would seem a dead ringer, but we'll see. Okay. Um, well, let's go on to the second version. Second time we come back to Bilbo's party, right? He's a little older, right? But uh, he's 71 or maybe 72. Um, that, to me, is not of tremendous interest. What is interest is that what is of interest to me is some of these elements that we get added now to the party and the party preparations. Time drew nearer. Odd-looking carts with odd-looking packages began to toil up the hill to Bag End, the residence of Mr. Bilbo Baggins. They arrived by night, and startled folk peered out of their doors to gape at them. Some were driven by outlandish folk singing strange songs, elves, or heavily hooded dwarves. There was one huge creaking wain with great lumbering tow-haired men on it that caused quite a commotion. It bore a large bee under a crown. It could not get across the bridge by the mill, and the men carried the goods on their backs up the hill, stumping on the hobbit road like elephants. All the beer at the inn vanished as if down a drain when they came downhill again. Later in the week a cart came trotting up in broad daylight. An old man was driving it all alone. He wore a tall, pointed blue hat and a long gray cloak. Hobbit boys and girls ran after the cart all the way up the hill. It had a cargo of fireworks that they could see when it began to unload. Great bundles of them, labeled with a red G. G for grand, they shouted, and that was as good a guess as they could make at its meaning. Not many of their elders guessed better. Hobbits have rather short memories, as a rule. As for the little old man, he vanished inside Bilbo's front door and never reappeared. Okay. What do you notice here? What do you notice here? Oh, the the groat? Robert, are you saying that groats is the is the uh, the currency, the unit of currency they used in Snurgs, right? Um, yes, good. James, the little old man is back. And yeah, John, so little old man is what Gandalf is called in chapter one of The Hobbit. Um, uh, he's a little old man. Uh, he ceases to be a little old man as just an old man later on, but he is, he is introduced as a little old man. So he's being reintroduced as a little old... So thanks, Robert. It is a groat, uh, not a ducat. So there we are. There you are, Kate. Uh, the Snurgs use groats, apparently. Um, uh, thank you, Robert. Uh, Robert, one of my chief fact-checkers, so I appreciate that. Um, okay. Um, so yes, Gandalf is a little old man again, and Nick was noticing that as well. This, again, seems to be a Hobbit continuity thing, right? Once again, another Hobbit continuity thing, fireworks, right? Gandalf's fireworks come straight out of chapter one, but with a difference now. Now, now, I don't just mean a difference in how the fireworks are presented. I mean a different connection to chapter one. Once again, in the second version of the chapter, we can see him making connections, making parallels between chapter one of The Hobbit and chapter one of The New Hobbit, right? As the Inklings called... Lord of the Rings for quite some time. This sequel that Tolkien was working on. Um, so, 
It's again the link, right? But he didn't choose that link before. And I think that this is a really significant choice of Tolkien's to use Gandalf and his fireworks now. No Gandalf, no fireworks in the first version, right? And it's not just like an oversight. Like, oh, there were probably fireworks. He just didn't make a big deal of it the first time. No, I don't think so, because fireworks are a big deal. So, quiz time. What is the significance of the fireworks in chapter one of The Hobbit? When do they come up, and what do they mean? What are they associated with um, in chapter one of The Hobbit? Do you remember? Remember? What, um, where, where are they referred to, and what significance do they have in, in the narrative? Good, yes. Bilbo mentions them, as several of you have uh, um, uh, pointed to. Many people with excellent, retentive hobbit memories here. Bilbo recalls them from his childhood that Gandalf was the guy who made the fireworks that used to get set off on old Took's birthday. Right, that Gandalf was the friend of the old Took, and that he used to make such excellent the, the excellent fireworks um, that had not been seen since his Bilbo's childhood. Right, um, and yes, as uh, who was talking about the Josh, of course, um, it comes up in the context of Bilbo not being as prosy as he likes to think. Right. Um, we see that, and Gandalf is pleased, right? He's glad that he remembers his fireworks fondly at any rate, right? Um, they're associated, at least as you say, with magic, right? This Gandalf is, Gandalf the wizard is like a walking adventure, right? He is, he's not just Tookish, right? He is the one who enables Tookishness. He's the one who, like, the, 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 the connection between Tooks and adventure is derivative of Gandalf, right? He's the one who gets the Tooks into this, right? Um, his fireworks are part of this other world of adventure and wonder and 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 uh, and magic that Bilbo recalls, right? And is recalling there in that moment in chapter one when we see this glimpse, right? The stories that he used to tell, the fireworks that he used to set off, the magic diamond studs that the old Took had that Gandalf gave him. Um, the fact that we are going to have a Gandalfian fireworks display in the long-expected party, I think, is introduces what I would call a radical shift in what happens there in Chapter 1. Gandalf is not going to play a big part in the chapter, right? As you will have noticed, after the fireworks display, Gandalf vanishes and never comes back uh, in Chapter 1. Right in this version of chapter one, um, so he's he's. It's not like he becomes the protagonist of the story or anything like that. But his significant his 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 inclusion seems to me very significant for a couple reasons. One, no longer at all in this version are we immersed in boring mainstream Hobbit culture. That was very much the frame of the first take. Right now we have... It's very different. Bilbo is bucking society from the very beginning, right? We have now... We no longer have a Bilbo who had at least apparently become reacclimated within Hobbit society, right? 
in this second version, there's no evidence that Bilbo is at all compliant with Hobbit society, right? Um, he is still that adventurous guy. He's now bringing in Gandalf. He is now the old. He's now the parallel to the old Took, right? Whereas he was recalling the old Took and the old Took's friendship with Gandalf. Now he is the older Hobbit who has the friendship with Gandalf, and it's at his birthday party that the fireworks are going to be set off. I don't know if Gandalf is going to give him a, a pair of magic diamond studs, but you know, something like that, right? So, we have a, re- a, a repetition, but also like a generational thing. Bilbo's now the heir, but he's the heir of that magical, wondrous, adventurous tradition. And he's flouting it, right? Look at all the foreigners, not just Gandalf and this, uh, this you know, heir of magic that comes in with the fireworks, but the dwarves, elves, and men who are stomping around in the Shire. Right? This is not normal. This is not mainstream at all. Right? Um, uh, so that I think is is really interesting. We have a whole new context for Bilbo, and it's in the context of uh, um, it's in the context of um, it's in the context of Gandalf, the story maker. Right? there's a new story starting up, and sure enough, Gandalf shows up in chapter one, right? This time bringing fireworks, not just remembering fireworks. Now, Cecilia's curious about the short memories thing. Um, you know, that later on, you know, we don't, later on we don't hear that hobbits have short memories. Uh, they remember the smallest doings of their great-grandfathers to the nth degree. Um, yeah, that's true. Uh, um, remember even memories in Brie are retentive, right? Uh, we're told. Um, I think the reference here is to the fact that Bilbo remembered Gandalf's fireworks, but nobody else seems to remember Gandalf's fireworks. I'm not sure. I mean, Cecilia, of course, in part, it may just be that that element of Hobbit society that is their retentive memories and obsession with family history uh, may be a, 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 a concept of Hobbit you know, sociology that comes in later on uh, in different, in later versions. But um, even apart from that possibility, I think that um, I think that the fact that um, it seems to me to be a nod to that Hobbit mainstream. This story has Bilbo rat- radically not in step with Hobbit mainstream from bef- even before the party begins. Right, the party itself is a manifestation. Of his, it's not just an unusually rich party. It is a totally unhobbit-like party, um, staffed by elves, dwarves, and men, um, and uh, featuring fireworks from a wizard. Right. Um, so it's, if anything, like a thumbing of his nose at Hobbit society. But the Hobbit society, we're reminded of that that Hobbit society that's still there, and they have forgotten about. Maybe it's uh, Cecilia. Maybe it's like um, in the first version how. Uh, Bilbo's oddity had been, uh, um, you know, sort of politely forgotten. Maybe they're try- they were trying to politely forget the old Took's oddities, right? And now here come the fireworks again. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, Dime says she's impressed by the the hobbitishness of these writings. Yes, he really Dime. He really has nailed the tone. Right. I mean, this is this is exactly his his. And again, not just 
tone of The Hobbit as a whole, because of course, as we all know, the, the tone of The Hobbit changes over the course of The Hobbit, and it grows and, and deepens into something much more solemn and, and much more epic as we go on. But, uh, but the beginning of this story is very much picking up on the, the tone of the beginning uh, of, uh, of The Hobbit. Oh, good. Catherine, you were just saying what I was suggesting before. It's not that nobody remembers, but that they had politely forgotten. Exactly. Exactly. Um, okay, good. All right. So let's... Uh, let's but we, we do... It, amidst all these foreign that is foreign to the Shire elements, we do have some familiar elements that is not familiar to the Shire, but familiar to us. And there was also one last thing in which Gandalf rather overdid it. After all, he knew a great deal about hobbits and their beliefs. The lights went out. A great smoke went up. It shaped itself like a mountain. It began to glow at the top. It burst into flames of scarlet and green. Out flew a red golden dragon. Not life-size, of course, but terribly lifelike. Fire came out of its mouth. Its eyes glared down. There was a roar, and it whizzed three times round the crowd. Everyone ducked, and some fell flat. The dragon passed like an express train and burst over Bywater with a deafening explosion. "'That means it is dinner time,' said Gandalf." A fortunate remark, for the pain and alarm vanished like magic. Now really we must hurry on, for this is for all this is not as important as it seemed. Um Yes, and uh Josh, very good. Josh Ramsey is pointing out that of course the express train, um the dragon passed like an express train, is one of the anachronisms of Tolkien's writings. It's still there in the published Lord of the Rings. It's one of the uh one of the few clear anachronisms in the Lord of the Rings. But of course, it's not an it's not an anachronism. It's not truly an anachronism. It's the narrator speaking, and the narrator of the Lord of the Rings is a modern narrator, a modern narrator and translator, right? Um, so it's not truly, an, it's not like one of the characters was talking about an express train, or something like that, or like an express train actually appears, right? Um, it's only a simile, and it's a simile used by the narrator, so it's okay, but it's very unlike the narrator of the rest of the Lord of the Rings. But Josh, you notice... It never gets cut. No matter how many times he revises this chapter, the bloody express train is going to stay in there. Even once that that anachronism becomes very, very much out of keeping with uh, with the rest of the story. But he's never going to lose it because um, because right, he often doesn't lose stuff. Um, anyway, okay. Um, now, yes, uh, so, Veronica, we get the Smaug reference here with the red gold dragon coming out of the mountain. Notice again the choice that Tolkien is making. Again, in this second version, we're seeing this, yet again, like Gandalf's fireworks, we're seeing Tolkien explicitly connecting chapter one of the, uh, of the, the new Hobbit to chapter one of the Hobbit, right? Because, uh, of course, it's in Chapter 1 that we learn about Smaug and we hear the Smaug song and everything, so we, we, we get introduced to the dragon. Once again, we see him very explicitly tying this story uh, to the earlier story and ex- and explicitly recalling it. It would seem as if it were for the ease of the audience, right, listening to the, uh, uh, you know, sort of who are, who are uh, coming to this story from The Hobbit. But again, also like the fireworks, notice that he's making a very different kind of connection. Um, that is, the th- what he's connecting to in The Hobbit is very different. Again, like the fireworks. It's 
the wonder, the magic, the fantastic, right, that he's connecting it to. He's reminding us not of, you know, Bilbo, and not just of Bilbo and his departure, right, not of his visit with Balin, right? What he's reminding us of is the dragon, right? Exactly the part of the story that nobody in the Shire believed, right? He wrote this nonsensical account that nobody believed, right? Um, And here's Gandalf. What does Gandalf do here in chapter one, in this version of chapter one? He takes that story that none of the hobbits believed and he makes it come alive in front of them, right? He makes them participate of it and he knows what he's doing, right? He knew a great deal, Gandalf knew a great deal about hobbits and their beliefs, Right? He knew that they don't believe in dragons, and he knows that they don't like being frightened, and that they're going to get completely freaked out by this. Right? And yes, Veronica, they don't enjoy it. Right? They have they show pain and alarm uh, when this when this happens. Right? But yes, Lance, exactly. It's Gandalf's joke. Right? Because he knows about their beliefs, he plays this joke on them. But exa- But again, but you see what the joke is, right? Um, oh, you don't believe Bilbo's story? Let me show. Let me make Bilbo's story come true in front of you, right? Again, like I'm gonna f- shove this fantastic world in your face, mainstream hobbits, right? And that seems to be what Bilbo's doing. Um, uh, that seems to be what, what Bilbo's doing in his party all the way through in this second version, right? And that puts the whole story on a new level. Now we're told. This is not as important as it seemed, right? We still get this idea that this whole party thing is just a preamble, right? It's not the main story, um, but it's certainly setting up the story in a particular way, and this second one in a very different way than uh, was than it was set up in the in the uh, in the first version. And of course, another important old friend. After his disappearance, after the after his announcement. The hobbit's mad. Always said so. Bad taste in jokes. Trying to pull the fur off our toes. A hobbit idiom. Spoiling a good dinner. Where's my handkerchief? Won't drink his health now. Shall drink my own. Where's that bottle? Is he is he going to get married? Not to anyone here tonight. Who would take him? Why goodbye? Where is there to go to? What is he leaving? And so on. At last old Rory Brandybuck, well-filled but still pretty bright, was heard to shout, Where is he now, anyway? Where's Bilbo? There was not a sign of their host anywhere. As a matter of fact, Bilbo Baggins had disappeared silently and unnoticed in the midst of all the talk. While he was speaking, he had already been fingering a small ring in his trouser pocket. As he stepped down, he had slipped it on, and he was never seen in Hobbiton again. We have Bilbo disappearing, but once again... So, notice, although his party is much more in your face to the mainstream hobbits than it was before in the older version. It is still he's still not setting, it's not an elaborate joke. It's not a setup, right? He's not going to vanish in a puff of smoke right in front of them or not in a puff of smoke as the case may be. That's not the plan, right? That's not what he's going to do. He still makes his announcement that he's going to leave and then he steps down and he does vanish and put on his ring but nobody sees him do it, right? And they just, where's Bilbo? is where they end up. No, look at how much time is spent on their questions, right? So again, what is the narrative emphasizing? It's emphasizing the flabbergastation of the Hobbit guests, right? Um, is he going to get married? He's going off suddenly. One does that when one is, is that what's happening? Right? They're trying to parse it, right? Does, does he mean he's getting married? 
is this like a weird way of saying you're getting married, you're running off to get married? Um, not to anyone here tonight. Who would take him? Why goodbye? Right? Why is he saying goodbye? That sounds really final. Why would he say goodbye? They can't understand it. Where is there to go to? I love that question. Where is there to go to? That's Shire Hobbits all over, right? Small Shire, big world, and they're like, where would you go? Right? I mean, you're going to, what, leave the Shire? Who would do that? Right? It's like it's not like there's anywhere else in the world to go other than the Shire. Um, uh, what is he leaving? Right? What? So they're like, the only it's, it's, the what is he leaving? What my my understanding of that is, is he running away from something? Because that's the only reason they can think of like why would you go away? Right? Is there some I don't know what scandal debt? Uh, you know. Uh, rap sheet. I don't know what it is exactly that he'd be running for, neither do they, right? What is he leaving? Is there some reason that he's going off? Is there a, does he have a particular reason for going off? Um, because they're stumped, right? The, again, the stumptitude, the flabbergastation is, uh, uh, is clearly the emphasis here. So once again, we show Bilbo being far more out of step with his society. They can't even comprehend what is going on and why he's doing what he's doing. Um, okay. I, I We're, we're going to get shorter in takes three and take four because, of course, he retains a lot of the stuff and I just want to emphasize uh, the differences in what he what he shifts to. So let's, let's look at version three. Oh, of course, our other old friend was the ring, right, which we get explicitly uh, introduced to here. Oh, and John, you're absolutely right. John Caldwell says uh, he noticed the small ring, right, which is interesting, right? It's not, it's not big. It's not grandiose. It's just a small ring in his pocket. Whether that's um, <clears throat> setting a setup, right? Oh, it's just a small ring, right? Um, or whether it really he's not thinking much of it. I don't know, right? Version 3. Only a couple things I want to look at from version 3. Of course, the big change, huge change from version 2 to version 3. We've taken Bilbo away from the role of protagonist entirely, right? Um, It was totally unclear which way he was going with that in version 1. He's made a decision, right? Bilbo is not going to be the protagonist. Bingo is the protagonist, and Bingo is Bilbo's son. I share with so many of you the deep debt of gratitude that we have to Tolkien for not sticking with the name Bingo. (laughs) But get used to it, because we're going to be talking about Bingo Baggins through this entire class. Uh, So... Uh, you're going to have to get over it because we're going to spend a lot of time with Bingo uh, here. So, okay, so, uh, and of course, remember, Bingo makes a lot of sense. It's like Bungo, right? Bingo, son of Bilbo, son of Bungo, originally here. So, like, what could make what could make uh, 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 more sense than that? Um, okay, so, so Bingo is our new protagonist. And we set up Bilbo at the beginning only to establish the link, but the link is, uh, is much shorter. So here, here, here's what we get near the beginning. He did two more things that caused tongues to wag. He got married when 71, a little but not too late for a hobbit, choosing a bride from the other side of the Shire and giving a wedding feast of memorable splendor. 
He disappeared, together with his wife, shortly before his 111th birthday, and was never seen again. The folk of Hobbiton and Bywater were cheated of a funeral, not that they had expected this for many a year yet, so, so they had a good deal to say. His residence, his wealth, his position, and the dubious regard of the neighborhood were inherited by his son Bingo, just before his own birthday, which happened to be the same as his father's. Bingo was, of course, a mere youngster of thirty-nine, who had hardly cut his wisdom teeth, but he at once began to carry on his father's reputation for oddity. He never went into mourning for his parents, and said he did not think they were dead. To the obvious question, where are they then? He merely winked. Okay. Um, okay. Um, oh yeah, Kate, we're gonna, I'm going to get to that in a little bit, maybe at the beginning of next time. Um, yeah, and John Caldwell is pointing out, Christopher points this out too in his commentary, that the, notice the the numbers that start floating up, right, that will be significant later on, like 11D1, right? Um, uh, they're not yet called 11D1. And Nancy, I don't think he's abandoned the Hobbit elopement. Um, uh, uh, oh, you mean because of, of the wedding feast, right? Yeah. Um, I'm sorry, no, I was thinking of version two when they talked about him getting married. It was still there then. It does seem li- likely that he's abandoned the uh, the elopement thing, Um but um, Yana says he thinks that a wink is a slightly creepy answer. Um, I don't know. I mean, like, what are you suggesting, Yana? That he's like, he's like, where are they then? He merely winked, like, you know, like, I knocked them off years ago, right? I mean, is, is, is Bingo winking in the sense of implying like you'll never find the bodies, right? Uh, I, I don't, I don't, I don't think that that's why he's winking. Um, uh, but. Um, what it does sort of suggest is, like, I could tell you, but I'm not gonna, right? Oh, Jared, are you are you suggesting that that's what uh, that's what uh, uh, Sancho Proudfoot was digging for? Um, but anyway, um, uh, he he he's winking, because uh, like, I I know, but I'm not going to tell you, right? Um, and why is he not going to tell them? He's not going to tell them because they won't believe him. Right, he knows they won't believe, and he's not going to go there. Um, in part, I read this as Bingo's sort of following in his father's tradition, his uh, uh, carrying on his father's reputation for oddity. Right, um, that is to say, Bingo Baggins is not in touch. Well, not he's in touch with, but he's not uh, in in step with the Hobbit mainstream culture. Right, and he knows this. He knows what the Hobbit mainstream. He knows that there's no point explaining. Right, they have their mind made up. They're not going to believe in whatever he says, so he doesn't even bother to engage with it. Right, he just winks at them. Right, uh, to kind of mystify them. So, um, uh, so yeah, um, yeah. Stephen is wondering about uh, how 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 queer those hobbits are on the other side of the Shire. If Bilbo was able to find a wife who was willing to disappear with him, um, yeah. Well, Stephen, I mean, you know. I like to think in this version of the story, I like to think of, you know, Bilbo and Mrs. Bilbo, who's presumably not uh, enormously ugly, um, uh, retiring off, like, you know, to Rivendell or some such, you know, and, and, uh, you know, the idea of him uh, taking his wife away and convincing her, like, hey, you know, let's run away from it all. Uh, And, uh, uh, and, and, 
you know, go, uh, go, go vanish together. And, and it, I, I think it's kind of cool. Um, but, uh, anyway, so, okay. So this, so what links is he establishing with the Hobbit here? Fewer, right? Fewer links. In version three, we don't get the same kind of laborious parallel with chapter one. We still get a parallel, right? With the long expected party and the unexpected party, but, um, but, um, but we don't have the elaborate parallels that we had before. Um, okay, let's keep going. Bingo's last words, I am leaving after dinner, were, con- were corrected on the manuscript to, I am leaving now. The collected comments after Bingo's concluding remarks now begin, The Hobbit's mad, always said so, and his father. He's been dead 33 years, I know. 144, 144, all rubbish. And Rory Brandybuck shouts, Where is Bilbo? Confound it. Bingo, I mean. Where is he? And after he was, after he was never seen in Hobbiton again, is added, the ring was his father's parting gift. Okay, so remember, Bingo makes that speech where he says that, like, uh, you know, he's drinking to the health of his father, Bilbo, and, you know, he is only half the man that his father was, right, because he's 72 and his father's 144. Um, so he, he's drinking Bilbo's health, even though everybody else presumes Bilbo to be dead. And then he says that he's leaving after dinner. So now, the departure, the non-sensational, that is non-spectacular, I'm going to vanish in front of your very eyes kind of disappearing is now Bingo's disappearance, right? Not Bilbo's disappearance. Um, So it it remains the same, um, but the oddity is connected also to Bilbo, again, to following in Bilbo's odd footsteps, right? Or oddity footsteps. Um... And I love the connection between them, right? As uh, Rory Brandybuck is complaining, right? Where is Bilbo? Confound it. Bingo, I mean, right? He, he actually gets them confused. He actually elides them in his mind uh, because they're so closely parallel. And uh, um, the ring was his father's parting gift, right? So, and that's... That, but look what, how much lighter a connection that is to The Hobbit, than we were getting in the earlier versions, right? Um, yeah, let's keep going. Well, there it is. So now, these next two passages are really interesting. The next two passages are the very end of version three, okay? Um, and so my question's here. Where is this heading now? Where, do, where is this going? What do we see? Well, there it is. All things come to an end. Evening came on. Bag end was left empty and gloomy. People went away, haggling and arguing, most of them. So this is after the whole giving away of stuff the next day. You could hear their voices coming up the hill in the dusk. Very few gave a thought to Bingo. They decided he had gone mad and run off, and that, and that was one Baggins the less, and that was that. They were annoyed about the legendary money, of course, but meanwhile there was tea waiting for them. There were some, of course, who regretted his sudden disappearance. A few of his younger friends were really distressed— but not all of them had said goodbye to him. That is easily explained, and soon will be. Okay, so we've seen that transition before, that is easily explained, and soon will be. Remember, before it was, and it was the same idea, right? When we got that at the end of version one, it seemed to, su- <clears throat> it seemed to suggest 
that Bilbo had not said goodbye to all of his young hobbit friends and that he was going to meet up with some of them in chapter two and, I guess, take them on the adventure, right? Now we have the same idea being connected with Bingo, right? So not all of Bingo's younger friends had said goodbye to him. Um, Another thing I would point out, do you notice the difference in narrative tone? Evening came on. Bag End was left empty and gloomy. People went away, haggling and arguing, most of them. You could hear their voices coming up the hill in the dusk. We don't get any description like that elsewhere in chapter one. There's nothing like that in in version one or version two. Um, evening came on. Even just that sentence, right? That's sort of a classic Tolkien sentence right there, right? Um, evening came on. Bag End was left empty and gloomy. Um, yes, Stephen, exactly. This is more like the Lord of the Rings narrator than the Hobbit narrator. Absolutely. Absolutely. Or more like the later chapters in The Hobbit than chapter one, Josh. I agree. I agree. Um, I don't know what to make of that. I don't want to go too far with it, but it is interesting to hear that. No longer... Is he, you know, DMA, you were pointing out before how closely he had nailed that tone and style of the Hobbit narrator, right? Not anymore. Not in version three so much, right? It's not so close to the same thing. Um, so where's he going? More. Bingo stepped out of the cupboard. It was getting dim. His watch said six. The door was open, and I, and... The door was open, as he had kept the key in his pocket. He went out, locked the door, leaving the key, and looked at the the sky. Stars were coming out. "'It's going to be a fine night,' he said. "'What a lark. Well, I must not keep them waiting. Now we're off. Goodbye.' He trotted down the garden, jumped the fence, and took to the fields, and passed like an invisible rustle in the grasses. An invisible rustle in the grasses is the end of version three. Right, that's where we stop and go back to start over again. What's he doing? Notice, he was hiding in a cupboard the entire day that everyone was in Bag End, you know, reading labels and carting away stuff, right? Um, but um, it's going to be a fine night. That's in The Lord of the Rings, right? Um we're much, yes, Josh, we are so much closer to the Lord of the Rings here. Um, yes, Kimber is pointing out the landscape and nature description. Um, we get that. And it comes in The Hobbit, right? But again, not in Chapter 1 of The Hobbit. And it certainly, we did not get it at all. Just sent, just that much description in a row um, we never got. Um, what we're getting here is the narrator stepping aside, right? The narrator, we got a lot of, in version one and two, especially version one, we get a lot of the narrator speaking directly to us, right? That is easily explained. Things like that, right? Um, Now the narrator is stepping aside and just telling us about stuff, right? Bingo stepped out of the cupboard. It was getting dim. His watch said six. The door was open, as he had kept the, the key in his pocket. He went out, locked the door, leaving the key, and looked at the sky. Stars were coming out. The narrator's almost invisible here, right? 
um, certainly compared to the other versions. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good. Well, let me let me. So, and where are we going? Where are we heading? Don't know. Presumably somewhere and with somebody else. Why we don't know. He's not getting married, right? As far as we know, right? He's uh, um, there's no apparent purpose for his journey. Um, do we? Are we? Tom, forgetting. Now help me keep this straight. Has he said that he's run out of money? I know it says that in one of the bingo versions. So I can't remember if it says it in both three and four. It sort of implies it, even if it doesn't say it. Anyway, um, version four is only one thing I want to emphasize, because it's quite similar. Well, it's quite short, for one thing. Um, but it's also quite similar. But, of course, you'll remember the one huge change that comes in with version four, right? And that is bingo ceases to be... Okay, it does say that in version three, James. Okay, I thought I did. I thought I did. Um, anyway, so in... In version 3, James, we do get that sense of it's time to begin a new adventure, right? We're leaving the Shire behind. But notice how much less tidy it is than it was in version 2, right? In version 2, you know, we have... He's come to the end of his dragon... In version 1, right? He's come to the end of his dragon gold, right? And it's time now to start a new... To start another adventure, Um so he's back to the starting place where he was, just like he ran out with no pocket handkerchief. Well, now he doesn't own anything but a pocket handkerchief, right? And a ring. And gold buttons on his waistcoat. But that's totally it, right? Um, anyway, so with Bingo, it's much less clear, right? Bilbo was kind of hitting the reset button in version one, right? Bingo, in version three, he's not resetting to anything. He's starting in a similar place to his dad, Um but we're not really given anything other than that. Um, and, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and a watch, apparently, Jared. Yes, I agree. Um, so let's look at version, of course, version four, the huge change. Bingo is no longer Bilbo's son, right? He becomes his nephew. But folk did not bother him much. He was frequently out, and if he was in, you never knew who you would find with him. Hobbits of quite poor families, or folk from distant villages, dwarves, and even sometimes elves. So this is Bilbo we're talking about um, at the beginning. He did two more things that caused tongues to wag. At the age of 99, he adopted his nephew. Or to be accurate, Bilbo scattered the titles nephew and niece about rather recklessly. His first cousin once removed, Bingo Bulger, a lad of 27. They had heard very little about him, and that not too good, they said. Remember, Frodo still keeps that, right? Frodo had a sketchy reputation, right? He was uh, kind of wild in his young days. Ask Farmer Maggot. He can tell you stories, right? Um, so uh, the uh, the idea that uh, what little to hear about him there was is not good. Uh, it's not going to go away. As a matter of fact, Bingo was the son of Primula Brandybuck and Rollo Bolger, who was quite unimportant, and she was one of the three remarkable daughters of the old Took, for long the head of the hobbits who lived across the water. And so the Tooks come in again, always a disturbing element, especially when mixed with Brandybuck. I love that, especially when mixed with Brandybuck. Yep, Arthur Rollo does marry up, clearly. 
Um, okay, so first Bilbo, then Bingo here in this passage. Um, and then after this, I'm going to let you go because we're, we're, we're at time here. Um, so first, um, Bingo. How, why does Bingo stand out? Um, notice how once again, again, another, like, it's almost parallel, right? One, when he does version two after version one, right? Version one and version two are similar. Version three and version four are similar, right? We've got the two Bilbo versions and the two Bingo versions, right? Um, between one and two, we have the addition of all that, those foreign elements, right? Him being an apparently going from being an apparently compliant member of Hobbit society to a totally ostentatiously outlandish misfit in Hobbit society, right? In version two. Um, here too, we get that emphasis, right? Um, Bilbo was outlandish and it's his outlandishness that's emphasized. And what is it that's emphasized? What is it that makes him weird? It's the company he keeps, man, right? Bilbo is totally not normal. In what way is he not normal? Right? Whom does he hang out with? Dwarves and elves? Yeah, but that's not where we start. Right? Where does he hang out with? The poor. Folk from distant villages. Right? Um, in other words, notice that Bilbo is, is crossing boundaries, but he's crossing internal boundaries as well. All of that petty parochialness of the hobbits that we talked about earlier, right? That seems really kind of unattractive, seems even more unattractive in some of these earlier versions than it will appear later on. Um, Bilbo is... Bilbo uh, uh, breaks down boundaries of class, right? He's a well-to-do hobbit, but he hangs out with poor people, right? He hangs out with people from other parts of the Shire, right? From distant villages, right? Unheard of! Folk are queer over there, Right? Oh, and dwarves. Oh, and P.S. fairies, right? Also elves sometimes. Um, so we have this, like, escalation. He hangs out with poor people and also people from, like, far away. Oh, and also dwarves, but at least people have seen dwarves before. And also elves, right, who only appear in legendary stories and barely anyone's ever even seen one. Um, that's interesting, right? Bilbo as the crosser of lines. Bilbo as the more inclusive one, right? Um, compare, so that's one of the ways. So he's not just adventurous in a sort of objective sense, right? He, uh, he, he is more inclusive as well, and that's really interesting. Um, what about Bingo and where Bingo comes from? Notice the family connection. He's no longer Bilbo's son, what is he? He's his nephew. Technically, first cousin once removed. And what is emphasized about the relationship? Primula Brandybuck. Right? Why is she remarkable? Because she is one of the three remarkable daughters of the old Took. Right? So, Bilbo's... Um, Bilbo's mom, of course, was one of the three remarkable daughters of the old Took as well, right? So, in other words, Bingo is being set up. He's not, he is taken to be Bilbo's heir, but he's taken to be Bilbo's heir because he is parallel to Bilbo, right? Both of them come from 
you know, uh, uh, from the old Took's daughters, right? Um, Stephen says her dad's a Took and her husband's a Bulger, so why is her name Brandy Buck? Uh, I, I don't know, <laughs> Stephen. I can't really explain that. I really can't. Uh, I kind of feel like, Stephen, he must have skipped a generation, because first of all, if Bingo's mom and F- Bilbo's mom are both uh, daughters of the old Took, they're not first cousins once removed. They're just first cousins, right? If their mothers were sisters. So in, if they're first cousins once removed, I think that um, Primula Brandybuck has to be uh, the daughter of one of the... Like she, she, she can't be the daughter of the old Took. She has to be like a daughter of one of the daughters of the old Took. Like there, there has to be another generation in there. Right. And that would explain also, Stephen, why she was named Brandybuck. Right. So one of the old Took's daughters, one of the others of the three. Right. The one who didn't one of the two who didn't marry Bungo Baggins um, marries a Brandybuck. Right. And then their daughter, their child presumably then has Primula Brandybuck. So so that we get an extra generation that makes sense of the of the the first cousin once removed thing. Um, and uh, it also explains why she's a, why she would be a Brandybuck. Um, and again, I'm not I'm not making any reference to the later Hobbit genealogies at the end of the Return of the King. Those are written way years after this, like a decade later. Um, I'm just based on internal evidence from this passage. That's what it seems like. Tolkien's kind of screwed that up. Like what he um, he seems to have slipped a cog somewhere in here, um, unless I'm slipping a cog, but I don't see it. So I think he I think he's he he messed that up. Anyway. Um, <clears throat> Demi asks, why would Premula settle for Rolo? Uh, she's remarkable and he's unimportant. I don't know, Dime. Why do the women always marry down in Tolkien? I don't know. I don't know. Um, but, uh, yeah, good, good. Okay, so, but but again, the, the, I don't want to get lost in details. The point is, Bingo is now parallel to Bilbo. So that when Bingo sets out on his adventure, he is like it's 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 a sequel, but it's le- it's different, right? He's decided to. It's not just the same story. Bilbo having a son, Bingo, and then Bingo having an adventure. It's that's still very sequelish, right? But there's a sense in which there's there's more of a continuity there, right? By having him be the nephew or the first cousin once removed, he's parallel to Bilbo, right? He's like Bilbo. And he's adopted by Bilbo. Like Bilbo himself recognizes the likeness and draws him in there, um, but um, but he um, he doesn't. Uh, it's not like the same story. He's not. He's not. He's not sort of. Do you see? Do you, do you see? It's, it's it's not just a family story, right? This is uh, another thing. Another adventure happens to another parallel Hobbit to Bilbo, not and now, the you know, uh, uh, you know, the Hobbit, the next generation, right? That's not, that's not what we're getting. And and that seems to me an important shift uh, for Tolkien in thinking about this new character, this new Bingo character as being really kind of standing on his own legs a little bit more and not just being like the guy who took over for Bilbo. And I think one of the things, you know, the, 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 this seems to follow up on what we were already noticing in version three, how much more distant the parallels with the Hobbit have become, right? No more are we kind of nailing that home all the time in the same ways. 
a lot of those earlier details retained, but uh, um, but but not not exactly the same. All right, I should let you guys go. Um, there's uh, uh, there's still a lot more to talk about, but um, we're good. Didn't quite get through all my slides, but I, I, I did much better than it looked like I was going to do, and I'd only covered one in 45 minutes. Uh, and more than 45 minutes, wasn't it? Anyway, um, we did fine. I want to start off next time with a few notes, and then we're going to go in and look at his sketches and plans. Those are the most exciting part of Chapter 1, the stuff at the very end where we see this, the sketches of what story he was thinking of, right? So we'll do that, and then we'll move on uh, into Chapter 2 and stuff next time. Um, so, yeah, Dennis, you will be able to download the PowerPoint slides. Uh, you can get... They'll be posted on the... Uh, they'll be on the iTunes U channel. I think they'll be posted on the website. Um, if you want to get the text of the passages that you can, so that you can see them. Um, yeah, they should be, they should be in a couple places. Anyway, thanks very much. This was a lot of fun. I look forward to carrying on next week. Um, so we'll, we'll meet next week. Then we have one week off for the holidays and then we'll come back in January, but we will meet again next week. So I look forward to talking to you then. Thanks everybody. See you in a week.